Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hi everybody, welcome back to 10% True. My next guest is Jim Rookie Roll. Jim's a retired two-star admiral, flew the F-14 over 25 years and accumulated about 4,000 hours in the aeroplane. Also flew the F-16N and the F-18. Jim was the first pilot to go straight from pilot training into the F-14 and was also in the first F-14 class to attend the Top Gun School. He also went back in 1990 as the commander of the Top Gun School and he has a wealth of experience and some great stories to tell. Jim's interview is split into two, this first part covering the early portions of his career, second part to follow will cover the rest of his career. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, please subscribe, hit the thumbs up button. Appreciate your support. So I went through uh, college uh, with a ROTC scholarship, so I ended up graduating with a commission in the Navy, and then went to flight school soon after and uh, spent quite a long time there. The, 1972, uh, we were having a sort of Vietnam wind down, as you know. So the the pilot training rates in the in all of the services had been really high going into the late 60s and early 70s, and then all of a sudden the war started to kind of unwind. So my experience was one of going to flight school when there was a, a huge surplus of uh, pilots in the training program. And, and a great dramatic fall off with the number of seats that were available in the fleet. So we spent uh, we spent a period of time going through uh, the first part of training, and then right in the middle of that, they they came through and gave half the people a pink slip to go home and you know cut the training rate from two thousand a year to one thousand, and that was all based on sort of a grade merit system, and and trying to get the supply to match the demand signal, uh, you know, at that point. So it uh, it was really an honor for me. I, I ended up spending more time in the training command because of all of that uh, churn and the number of people that were in the population and the really inability to service that whole group. Um, went to master's, got a master's degree while I was in flight training, which was unusual, but it was because there was an extra amount of time to do that. And then uh, we had a transition of the training airplane. So the A4, uh, the T2 and the A4 that were was a follow-on uh, trainer for the advanced. Uh, the F9J was uh, the previous trainer and it, and it started having mechanical problems. So they stopped flying it. So the, there were no training aids for about six months while they transitioned all 
the advanced training from the F-9 to the A-4. So I actually went through flight training for the A-4 with the instructor pilots that were in school at the same time. And we got to know each other pretty well. And, and, uh, and it was a very comfortable environment at that point. So uh, went through the advanced training, did well, uh, and, and was lucky enough to graduate fairly high to where there was a couple of sets of orders to the F-14 uh, training squadron uh, for new people coming out. And that was in 73. And uh, went to Miramar to join sort of the initial fleet stand-up of the F-14. And uh, there were two squadrons at the time that were uh, had been transitioned and were all the previous cadres were just transitioned into the F-14. Uh, and then we were at Miramar with 11 airplanes. The whole flight line was full of F-4s. Uh, the early F-14 days were very difficult. The, uh, the history, a little bit of it, was that the, the Navy and the Air Force had been pushed to find a common following airplane, and the F-111 was sort of that target um, so the Navy and the Air Force were both evaluating it for uh, the, you know, their tactical use. The F-111 was a swing-wing fighter, and it could, uh, it technically could land on a ship. Uh, so, but there was a lot of consternation inside the Navy that that's not the airplane uh, that they needed. So the uh, at at a point in the late '60s, uh, the decision was made by Navy officials that they were going to try and develop a new airplane, the F-14. Uh, it was pretty hard uh, fought. Uh, and at the end of the war, you know, the money's kind of going down, but there was a great uh, rush to try to field the F-14 before essentially everything was going to get canceled. So the airplane was, was designed, built, and put to, to task in a relatively short uh, time frame. And one of the, and there was a lot of bad things that happened because of that, and I can go over that in some detail, but uh, one of the, the, the largest fallouts was that there wasn't enough time to finish the new engine that was supposed to be uh, part of the F-14 program. So they ended up taking an A-7 engine, uh, TF-40, and uh, putting an afterburner on it and sort of kind of kludging together an interim solution, which ended up being a, 20-year solution uh, and putting it in the F-14. Um, there were a lot of other lot of other issues. So, but the primary one was that the engine just had a really really rough start. Uh, so, on the first cruise, we lost two airplanes due to fan blades separating from the hub and going through the fuel tanks. Uh, and so, this fan blade integrity and the whole dynamics of uh, thermodynamics of engines and, and trying to put, you know, a, a much bigger load on a, what it was a fairly old technology uh, turned out to be um, a real problem set for us. So when I deployed in 74 for the first time, uh, we were having massive inspections and reworks and we we're pulling engines out of airplanes all the time to where the uh, trying to get safety you know, we put, they put shrouding around all the fan blades, you know, armor plating and trying to protect the airplane from the engine. Uh, and we also had a lot of problems with uh, water intrusion integrity of the actual airframe itself. And uh, so there was a lot of bugs. So the first cruise I had was, was kind of a, 
a, a terrible, uh, I would, disaster, honestly. We had 24 airplanes on the ship and routinely had one or two to fly. And there were, you know, it just was uh, all maintenance and all problems involved with a brand new airplane. Um, now was, that was that a combat cruise? Did you go to uh, Southeast Asia? No, uh, we went to the Mediterranean, and uh, it was a combat against the airplane, actually. So we were trying to you know, to live through. There, there were just a lot of problems with uh, water intrusion. We had spoilers coming up in flight, and uh, the. The airplane itself was aerodynamically very efficient, as you know, especially with the wings out. And so the uh, one of the big problems we had around the ship was that the the, it, the airplane was light, had no drop tanks, it was no had almost nothing on the wings. So you were back on the idle stops trying to land aboard ship. And the spool up time for the big fan engine was several seconds. So if you if you got low underpowered, you're, it was not not pretty. So again, there were there was just a lot of things that went on over the over the years to try to improve the engine uh, and to improve the flight control systems. Try to try to solve a whole myriad of sort of maintenance actions like flaps locking out and you know things happening the way they shouldn't happen. Um, really remarkable change in the next five seven years over as they improved. Um, improve the uh, the performance of the airplane internally. Uh, the other things that that were significant in terms of the F-14 was uh, uh, all the upgrades over time. You imagine we we started out with uh, 19 different computers in the airplane, and they were all trying to inter- interact with each other. Uh, it was the, one of the first computerized airplanes, but it was it was an analog base with the all these computers. Uh, sort of fighting each other. And as the technology got better electronically, we went from tape drives to hard drives to, you know, huge increases in memory, a lot of digital upgrades to the airplane that were really very easy to do uh, and increase the, the, the electronic performance of the airplane dramatically. So that was all, all headed in a good direction. And, and so the, uh, the second, third, fourth, fifth block of airplanes that were produced ended up being, you know, you know, almost levels of effort uh, better each time a new airplane came out. Uh, and eventually, we did get a new set of engines, uh, the F-110, uh, which is a GE engine. It was, it's in the F-16. It's in the F-15 as well. Uh, we retrofitted, started to retrofit airplanes with the, this airplane with, with engines like that. And... The reliability of the engine was a whole lot better. The fuel controls, the uh, had a substantial amount more thrust available than the TF-30, and and so that was a really a phase one and phase two of the airplane. The, the last airplanes that were built with TF uh, with uh, 110 engines, all digital uh, infrastructure, all new radars, you know, very high end ended up being really excellent airplanes, you know, all, you know, a, all the way from the beginning to the end. Uh, the early ones, we, we were fighting them, just almost fighting the airplanes to stay alive and had to get very much involved in the maintenance of the airplanes to make sure that we had a, something to fly at all. So we, we were all pilots, we're all part maintainers and, and uh, much less pilots like the Air Force, you know, they have a maintenance squadron and a, operational training squadron. We were really blended in 
trying to uh, uh, help to get the airplanes to fly and then taking care of them uh, almost all the time. When you did get to fly then, um, were they operationally effective in the early days? I mean, it was a fleet defender. My understanding is that it was intended to be able to reach out hit at any bombers that were maybe going to drop some nuclear missiles or bombs on the fleet. Um, could it do the job in, in the early days? Yes, and it was, it was built as a fleet air defense fighter. So if you think about that time of, of everyone's life, is the Cold War. And it's the Soviets against the United States. So the the war at sea was very much long-range bombers coming out to try to drop cruise missiles against carrier air groups, and that was uh, and that was a big big part of our life uh, was extended range interception of uh, Badger Bear bombers that were coming out to intercede and and really try to interfere with our operations. So the uh, there was a cat and mouse game going on continuously between the deployed forces and the um, and, and the Soviet forces, both ground, sea, and air. So the the F-14 could carry the Phoenix missile system, which was an extended range, 110-mile uh, range missile that had a very good active seeker head on it, uh, and it uh, it would fly out. To 110,000 feet, and, and then essentially go very long range, and then come down and find the target. The the radar was very long range, 120 mile radar, because it had a big dish nose, and so they, as a fleet air defender, the airplane was extremely capable of uh, of out you know reaching out. We would routinely go out 400 miles from the carrier and cap, and then uh, intercept bombers that were at, at extreme ranges. Uh, and play the game with the Soviets about trying to find the ship, turning off all the electronics, you know, you know, trying to play cat and mouse with them, just to prove that we could be where we, want, where we wanted to be and that they uh, couldn't necessarily target us when they wanted to. And so that, that's a lot of that was uh, long, long, mission, long missions and, uh, you know, sort of a mind game between us and the Russians. So. If, if you talk to um, some RAF pilots who have done that kind of intercept over um, the North Sea here, um, they'll say that, uh, you know, particularly back when things were cold, the relationship between us and the Soviets were cold, that those those bombers would play some sort of dirty tricks, um, you know, particularly at night, turning on lights, getting low, trying to drag them into the sea, right. disorientate them. Did you experience anything like that? Yeah, all of that. Uh, they had one one electronic badger that came by and, and it turned all its jamming on and started frying uh, equipment in the airplane. I mean, that, that was probably as, as bad as I ever saw it. But they routinely, if they'd find the carrier, they'd want to fly around at low altitude for an extended period of time. And we always had someone on their wing and they would try to scrape the end of the water. There was a, a, you know, there was a serious confrontation between us and the Soviets in terms of uh, point and counterpoint, trying to make sure that we we got in their face, they, they would come out and, and harass us. And so I, I think it was just part of the overall strategy of confrontation. And that's uh, when you'd get up next to these folks, they weren't necessarily unfriendly, you know, in, in, you know pilot to pilot. They were, it was more about uh, the game that was being played. So I think it's 
it was an important part of our history and it was serious business for the carrier force. Um, and it was, uh, in some cases it was pretty serious business. Um, and I've got a whole bunch of stories I could tell you about detachments that we did in, in Alaska chasing bear bombers around. Um, but the, uh, that fleet air defense, getting on and off the ship and trying to keep the airplanes, you know, improving the airplanes reliability were, were big focuses in the early, in the early days. The other thing that you had was a data link. Is that correct? We did. Um, with, with the E2 and, and amongst yourselves. Right. So we had a data link. We had a, uh, an eye in the sky, you know, with us all the time. That was helpful. Uh, the two-man crew was useful. The backseat didn't have any flight controls in it, but the radar operator, you know, pretty much ran the radar. Um, the the pilot did uh, the closer in, uh, you know, sidewinder kind of things, and and the air, air combat maneuvering, obviously. And you could run the radar from the front seat in the tactical mode. If you're doing dogfighting, you know, run the, the radar up and down, and you know, and get uh, links and you could also work the sidewinder, seek your head. Uh, so that that was a good combination, and I, I found it useful. I was thinking, you know, probably the Soviet approach would have been to have tried to rush the fleet with overwhelming numbers. I mean, that that was always there. Yes, you know, sort of a you know quantity has a quality of its own. Uh, I guess you would say. Um, what did do? You know, how how are you going to approach that that, um, that threat? Then how would how many aeroplanes, how many Tomcats could you get off the deck? Well, the Mediterranean environment is a little more constricted than the Pacific, for example. Um, I'd say the first cruise I was on, we were operationally ineffective. I, I there there were so many problems with the um, the weapons control functions on the airplane that we, we didn't even load any missiles. I mean, it, it was kind of that bad. Uh, we did have a gun and the gun would work, but the whole, um, it was, it was an analog weapons control system and it was very prone to kind of go off on its own and, and be difficult. Um, so I'd say the whole, I would write off the first cruise in terms of an experience there. After that, we started, to build up more and more uh, the ability to, to launch more airplanes, and and in the big fleet exercises, we would we could sustain eight airplanes in the air almost continuously, you know, during the hours that we were flying, and the tactic for the the Russian or the Soviet thing was uh, to try to fly far enough out from the ship and intercept the bombers at a range. Beyond that, they could they, that they could launch their missiles. So that if a bomber was carrying two or three or four weapons, that you would deal with the bomber, not with the missiles. I mean, that was the the force multiplier, and and so that we we did cap at range, you know, like I said, 400 miles, and and we would, you know, sustain that coverage, uh, and then every bomber that came near the ship, uh, you know, it was visibly. Uh, it had a had a friend, you know, it had a Tomcat attached to it, and that that's you know all us telling them that okay, you know, we can get you a, at a range that you can't shoot at us, uh, that we're here and that uh, in all weather <laughs> and whatever conditions, and and that you know just trying to to 
tell them, you know, by our actions that, that we were there to stay and that we could, we could defend ourselves. One of the things that, that seems to be thematic when you talk to people going, you know, young guys who have come out of the training pipeline who have gone to their first operational fighter is that you know, just just being a wingman is a challenge in the, maybe mm -hmm. the first year or two. Um, does, does going to sea, does doing that off of the boat, um, does doing it in a brand new aeroplane that has all these problems make that challenge that much greater? Well, for me, in my first cruise, I didn't know any better. So it just was what it was, you know, and it, it was challenging, especially at night. Uh, today we have a heads up display, which has very good graphics and, and is a lot of really good information. The early heads up display in the F-14 would jitter. It would sort of vibrate. And so you had, we would turn it off, uh, especially at night because it was just, it was disruptive to your, uh, so there was no automatic carrier landing system. We had, we didn't really even have like an ILS or something that was uh, showed you the glide slope. You just, it was pretty much all visual. Uh, a lot of scary performance at the back of the boat with uh, early F-14. And we, we lost a substantial number of airplanes, um, some to mechanical failure, some to engine failure, some to um, other systems that, you know, hydraulics, all this stuff that would, I think in the whole history of the F-14, we, we probably built about 420 and, and 110 or so were lost you know, to, uh, to some sort of uh, accident or failure. Uh, so it, it, was, it was a challenge. And, and as a young person, you have a, sort of this invincibility. You know, it's not going to happen to me. So it was a challenge in, in that you knew the airplane. It, you just got to know it really well. You tried to, to deal with it on its own terms and then have it, uh, you know, understand what it was going through and, and then learn to deal with all of its uh, idiosyncrasies. So we had a lot of circuit breakers that we would have to change, reset in the computers. You know, it's just something you got along. You just learn how to do it. Uh, and it, it was, it was more than should have been true. So uh, I think that, as I transition to better and better F-14s, you know, in, in the 25 years that I was flying them, uh, the the eye opener for me was when I went to Top Gun as the actually the CEO, the commanding officer in 1990. It was my first exposure to an F-16, and our F-16s were brand new. All the we killed them, uh, but with fatigue life, but. It was the first time I ever got in an airplane and everything worked. And and I flew it, came back, everything worked. And I never got in an F-16 that I didn't take off, uh, which was remarkable for an F-14 experienced person because uh, for most of my life on the carrier, if we wanted to, lo to launch, excuse me, launch two airplanes, we had to have a third in spare. So a, a, a running spare on the flight deck because routinely one of the two would, would, you know, have a failure between the time it started up and it got to the catapult. So uh, the pilot's life was fly two and then have to man a spare every day. And so you had this extra third of your life, which was taken up by essentially reliability issues. Uh, so uh, F-16s, I never 
spare. We never spared anything at Top End. We had six of them. We flew six, three times a day, and, and that was a whole new experience for me. That oh, you know how, uh, you know how surprised I was that wow, this really works, and that, you know we need we need to put reliability at the top of the list on the next round here because you know it's just it it's not only a safety issue, it's just a huge issue with releasing the air crews to go do the operational task, right? So if you can go off and think about tactics, I mean, that's think about how much time you spent doing maintenance rather than tactics. And, and, and as we progressed in the Navy and, you know, through the fighter weapons school business and tried to sort of bring the, the flying cadre more and more into the tactical realm, I think we had great improvements. You mentioned um, some interesting moments landing on the boat at night, and you explained that getting to know the aeroplane was sort of paramount in sort of overcoming those challenges. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to land in the daytime and what the differences then are? Obviously, it's dark, but what the differences are between doing that um, in the day and then at night? So the, I mean, there are some obvious ones. I, I would say in the daytime, you can see the horizon. You can, you know, you you know, kind of virtually where you are uh, above uh, around the ship. the 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 challenges of a day landing on on an aircraft carrier really involve the day pattern, because you come into a pitch or a break and you and you, you know, feed yourself into a a downwind, and then you have to make a, a 90, 180 degree turn to get on to final at the back of the boat. So you're you're constantly flying in a turn and and getting yourself, you know, hopefully lined up uh, with the ship as you come out of that turn, having the right amount of power and and so that when you go wings level that you you only have 15 or 18 seconds before you land. So there's not a lot of room for error at the start in a day pattern, just because of the fact that you're 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 changing. Uh, you're changing your attitude in a, in a bank and the whole thing, your power settings. Uh, so if you get a good start in the daytime, that's fine. A lot of failure in the day pattern are all associated with, uh, with bad pattern behavior, you know, getting a bad start. At night, you lose all these visual cues, and so now you're flying an instrument approach. And uh, that... Uh, that is today you would you would have a glide slope indicator, you'd you'd have a some a lot of technology that helps you see where you should be on the glide slope, uh, how to get better lined up with the uh, with the ship itself, and then and then a lot of the flight controls are are tuned to be much more reactive than they were in the old days. So the um, without getting too technical the. Uh, the F-14 is is a big, big wing airplane, and, and occasionally it would get bent. And so at at night, flying uh, flying straight ahead often meant you were in a slight angle of bank just because of the dynamics of the airplane. So you you'd end up with uh, learning tricks over time to always try to flatten the wings to the horizon at night so that you're not constantly in a turn, you know, without knowing about it, you know, and so you just try to try to take away those variables. Uh, the other issues, the uh, airplane had a lot of yaw movement, so that you're 
getting a sort of a weaving scale, uh, looking at the ship and uh, at night, and you didn't just have a lot of visual cues. So you were trying to allow your best radar altimeter uh, approach help really by the backseater without any HUD, uh, and 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 then you also had uh, a lot of issues with the ship moving around, obviously. So you know the, these things turn themselves in, into uh, quite a challenge. And I'd say, so the first, my, my whole F-14 career, we really were fairly basic airplane, you know, without a lot of technology. And uh, my son flew with F-18s after I got out. Uh, and I used to ask him about what's it like, you know, how do you, what do you think about flying, you know, at the back of the boat? And he said, it's not a big deal. And the new technology on the HUD is that you, you have all this, uh, all these pres- cues present. And if you, you put this thing called the tadpole on the, on the ship, you're going to end up on the ship and, and, and you have autopilot and a lot of, a lot of really great features that are helping you speed stabilize the airplane, uh, to the point where a lot of, you know, I'd say quite a high percentage of, uh, landings on the ship today are done automatically where the pilot doesn't have any control over it. So that, you know, that's, that's a, a large, uh, it took a lot of the safety out of it, both by fixing the airplane, you know, if an engine quit and you came back single engine at night, boy, that, that was really not a good thing. I mean, if you came back with, uh, with some stick, you know, some problem with spoilers and, you know, just added to the challenge of trying to get aboard at night. Um, but today, I, with today's technology, they've, they've really taken a lot of that risk out. You know, the reliability is much better. The visual cues are a whole lot better. You've got all this airliner kind of uh, displays, but, you know, to help you tell where you are on the back of the boat. Uh, they've also, oh, just in the last three or four years, created a, a brand new system called Magic Carpet for for the airplanes landing on the carriers today. And it's a combination of, of uh, awareness by the airplane where the ship is, where it's going, and then a new flight control system. And it, again, it makes it, makes it an order of magnitude easier to land on the carrier. So that, uh, it, you know, these things are getting better over time. You mentioned earlier about uh, running intercepts on the, the Soviets with uh, you know, everything turned off. That I guess is one of the the things that you would you would question about going into into combat, whether or not these systems that re- rely on electronic emissions, whether they're going to be turned on, whether or not they'll still work in a jamming environment, whether or not uh, the skills that are required to manually get back on the boat have atrophied because there's been a reliance on technology. Where's where's the balance? Well, we did entire deployments without any radar. You know, the ship turned off the tack ends and then. Um, and they were very serious about uh, uh, maintaining integrity, you know, of, the, of their electronic footprint. Uh, we did a lot of deceptive things where you would have carrier-like uh, emissions from another ship, or uh, you would do uh, deceptive approaches. And so they're, they're, this was very much on their mind. I don't know today there there are a lot of systems that have been created that are GPS based, which how allow you to 
find out where you are relative to the ship using GPS, you know, relative GPS, which is, doesn't really use emissions from the platform itself. And so that helps. And then a lot of the new um, um, carrier landing approach systems that go from the ship to the, the airplane itself are low probability intercept uh, signals. And, and so they've, they've tried to, to you know, maximize the, your opportunity to remain uh, uh, outside of, you know, uh, maintain your electronic um, emissions, um, manage that. So, you know, ultimately, you know, with today's satellite coverage and, and all of the systems going on, trying to hide from the enemy is, is much harder just because of all the, uh, the other sensors that are out there, heat sensors, satellites that are, they're, watching motion, you know, so it's, it's a, it, the game evolves. And so the, the, you know, it just has to be put into your tactics. In the old days, it was, it was control your emissions and scare the hell out of yourself coming back to the boat. Um, I flew a couple of missions in the Bering Sea that where the Russians were trying to find us north of the Aleutian Islands, where I was, you know, shot off in the middle of the night in the middle of snowstorms with no, the ship was not going to turn on anything. Uh, and, and then we'd go up and chase the uh, Soviets around and then have to find the ship. And you could use the radar to find, you know, you had a place where you thought it was you know, going to be, and then you just have to make your, make your way back and find it. And, um, you know, those were very challenging missions for sure.